I don't think anyone listens to this, so I think it's fine. Well, I mean, nobody who we want to listen to it <laughs> listens to it. <laughs> <laughs> about the unique horrors of being British, a leftist, and a Christian. I am Ben Molyneux Hetherington, and I am joined, as always, by Adam Spears. Hello, Adam. Hey, hey, what's going on? The correct answer to that question was uh, Happy Jubilee, I believe. Uh, it, is, it is today, isn't it? We are recording on the day of the Queen's Jubilee. Are you testing me, Satan? As in by asking you the question or by simply mentioning the J word? Just any of it, really. Yeah. I don't know. Is it today? I, just, I don't know. I don't care. I think so. On the basis that I understand it's a bank holiday and the only reason it'd be a Thursday is because it was the, the actual Jubilee today and then the Friday was added, I think. Everything that we're going to say from this point on, I think, should be understood in the context of the fact that neither of us get bank holidays. So, uh, we'd like, it doesn't kind of, you know, the main thing that appeals about the monarchy doesn't apply to either of us. And that's why we're not royalists, which is, uh, <laughs> that's the, the only reason. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. We can pretend there's all like highfalutin principles or whatever, but to be honest, I'm quite happy not to get bank holidays and just get the extra holiday in exchange because everywhere was absolutely ran. So your, today. your, your price for turning your back on your principles is very low, isn't it? It wouldn't even be 30 pieces of silver for you, would it? Yeah, yeah, I do deal for 20, no worries. <laughs> uh, yes, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the monarchy, its relationship to Christianity and the church in this country. Um, I don't think it's a particular spoiler to anyone who's ever heard this podcast before or indeed understands the basic concept of being left-wing to discover that neither of us are particularly in favour of uh, the monarchy as a concept. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about issues of, of abuse within the church and they're going to come up. And I'm quite aware that yesterday uh, was the announcement of the uh, rulings in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Uh, we're not going to get into that in any depth because we don't have a whole podcast to get into it. But uh, we did just want to send our unconditional love and solidarity to victims of abuse because it is undoubtedly... An extremely tough time to be a survivor of abuse of any form uh, in the light of the kind of news and the response and the social media furore around it all. Um, so yeah, our unconditional love and solidarity to abuse survivors wherever you are and obviously in particular for those who have experienced abuse in the church. Um, we continue to be committed to do our best to uh, support you as you seek justice. going to start with our usual segment what else is on my mind grapes what else is on my mind grapes adam what is on your mind grapes sadly 
Calvin Robinson is on my mind grapes. Um, Your mind grapes are deeply diseased. <laughs> they, they should not be making any sort of wine. Yeah, I, I, I think I might have to prune them fairly significantly after this episode. <laughs> um, Calvin Robinson doesn't occupy a lot of time on my mind grapes, but a few articles have come out recently talking about how he was apparently blocked from becoming a vicar in the Church of England. Now, for anyone who is blessedly unaware of who Calvin Robinson is. Can I just stop you there? For anyone who is blessedly unaware who Calvin Robinson is, I genuinely recommend just skip forward through this, skip this <laughs> section. Live in your prelapsarian innocence yeah. for as long as you can. Uh, for those of you whose minds have been sadly destroyed by the knowledge of his existence, Adam, please continue. So uh, Calvin Robinson is a, um, I guess, TV presenter, if you can call him that, uh, a political commentator. Again, if you could call him that, I yeah. suppose. He's a character who pops up on the hard right, I guess you would say, of politics in, in this country. In particular, he was quite a prominent uh, feature on uh, GB News. He, he presents a programme on there. Right, which for those of you, again, who are blessedly ignorant, is a an attempt to basically do a Fox News for the UK that um, I don't even know if it's still around. It's still around. It's just not it, it, doing it, well. <laughs> it crashed and burned. It was it was not that there's necess- not necessarily a market for a far right TV channel. It's just that it was done so amateurishly to the extent that they literally did what is almost impossible and officially got zero yeah. viewers to an hour <laughs> of programming, which is. Essentially unheard of, even even when you get like I don't know, like BBC Four or Three or whatever, where they aren't on during the day, they will get viewers to the title card. But GB News managed to get zero viewers whatsoever to an actual program, which is yeah, genuinely impressive. Which doesn't actually, to be fair, it doesn't actually mean that they didn't have any viewers at all. It's just that the the way the boxes work that measure how many people are tuned in are basically dotted around the country. And they take an estimate from that. So, like, they might have had some viewers, but at that point, nobody who had one of those boxes was watching that program. Yeah. Which, you know, good. Yes. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, so Calvin Robinson was apparently, as he says it, blocked from becoming um, a vicar in the Church of England. Um, What actually happened was that um, you, you can't be ordained... Uh, unless you have actually found somewhere that will let you go and be a curate, which is like a uh, kind of like a, a trainee priest, but a step on from um, actually training in college. And um, he, I think he was offered a part-time thing, but there were concerns about it. And, and there have been concerns raised by various bishops about some of his views, which are, well, not great. It's one of those um, situations that you get sometimes as a leftist where conservatives are going, this is happening and it is very, very bad. And liberals are going, this would be really, really bad, but it isn't actually happening. And as leftists, we're going, this isn't actually happening, but but it probably should. It would be quite good yeah, yeah. if it did actually. <laughs> like, um, We had a bit of a conversation before we started recording about whether we wanted to talk about Calvin Robinson at all. Uh, and we decided that basically we weren't influential or widespread enough to really make a difference <laughs> on this. But the reason that we were kind of having that conversation is I think it's important to recognise that trying to become a vicar for Calvin Robinson was purely part of his right-wing grift. He 
probably always suspected he was never actually going to be ordained, but it gave him the opportunity to run his grift a little bit further. You know, it's a classic manoeuvre. Put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to get turned down for something and then loudly whine about how you're being censored, how you're being thrown out, how it's cancel culture and all that sort of thing. This is just the Christian version of that. He probably had no intention of ever actually being ordained. He was always going to try and parlay this into some sort of media career. So yeah, in one way, actually, the whole thing is stupid and we shouldn't take it seriously because he never had any intention of of doing this. And I don't want to say he has no genuine religious sentiment, but I certainly don't think he ever felt any genuine calling to a priesthood beyond a calling to make a load of money off being a media personality. There is one problem with what you were just saying, even though I agree with a lot of it in that he is actually still going to be ordained, but within the GAFCON network, which, for anyone who doesn't know, is a conservative breakaway that operates alongside not just the Church of England, but Anglican churches around the world. And their whole thing basically is uh, anti-women, anti-anything that they would see as as progressive or, or, or as he puts it, woke. So he's gonna he's gonna be a Gafcon priest now. Which, to be honest, I know you're saying, well, I, I'm I'm wrong because I said he wasn't getting ordained in years. But like, I can Google an on, ordain yourself online thing, and I can call myself a <laughs> reverend. But it's about as real as well, about as real as any ordination. But particularly uh, compared to the Gafcon thing. Well, um, technically, technically, holy orders in Gafcon are are legitimate because they have bishops who went over with them. My counterpoint is that no holy orders are legitimate, but we won't get into that particular debate. Um, what I found particularly half funny, half interesting, is that uh, Calvin Robinson went after the right Reverend Jonathan Baker, who is the Bishop of Fulham. He is basically the uh, homophobic bishop, because basically uh, the Church of England has a bunch of alternative bishops for people who are too homophobic and or misogynistic to accept the normal bishops. So they're obviously super conservative. Uh, they don't essentially they they don't get their hands dirty by blessing women priests, and therefore they're offered to uh, the dickhead priests in their area to be the alternative <laughs> bishop for them. The dickhead priests. I'm so glad it's you saying this and, <laughs> and, and not me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a, a part of me does want to apologise because that's obviously somewhat of a tautology to say dickhead priests. Wow. But I. Wow. <laughs> You're, you know you're like married to someone who is going to be a priest and literally doing a yeah. podcast with someone who's going to be a priest, yeah, yeah. right? Like, you, you yeah, that's why that. I didn't. That's that's why I didn't say that because I wouldn't disrespect either of you like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, the, the Bishop of Fulham, Calvin Robinson, goes after him. Like, really says that he is is bad and has failed in his job. And there is something interesting about even the most conservative leadership of the Church of England is not conservative enough for this guy. Um, and it certainly suggests that there wasn't really any kind of commitment to the internal workings of the Church of England, even under its most conservative auspices. And, yeah, it's just quite funny for him to be like, hey, this guy's not good enough. The guy who literally exists to make misogynists feel more at home in the church. And actually, even people like Sarah Mullally. So Sarah Mullally is the, the Bishop of London. Her take on this I found really fascinating as well, because, you know, she she said that, Mr. Robinson's views were immaterial to whether he was ordained or not, because she believed in um, stronger 
diversity of opinion in in london where where they are um and that she said that uh we should remain kind and respectful of one another's views and i gotta say i strongly disagree with that because you know okay maybe maybe people use uh views when they mean people um but to me when you're saying you need to be kind and respectful of one another's views well where is the line with that right because actually i am not kind and respectful of calvin robinson's views i think his views are dangerous and disgusting even the church has cut off lines where they say actually we should not be kind and respectful towards these views and their cut off line officially is if you're a member or have been a member of the bnp right now i want to suggest that actually if that's your cut off point you've set the bar pretty low yeah know? yeah and i'll just say you know i can joke about you know where the the line should be um or whatever but i there is part of me that kind of understands the if you're looking to be some sort of uh if not universal church and certainly you know that it's a national church and even if that doesn't mean being a national institution if you're attempting to serve the whole of the country maybe there is a sense in which you have to allow people with conservative politics to be ordained and by more conservative you, you do mean are they uh, a marxist leninist or yeah i mean i'd be evil, even prepared to welcome some kind of more radical social democrats within there you know i'm a oh, wow. i'm an open-minded person so, that, like so that. there is room for for some electoral politics but you're treading on thin ice yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, really conservative stuff, I think, just will have a place. Um, no, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with the argument, but I can see the argument that you have to have some people with views that are in line with the Conservative Party. Um, but this guy is not a mainstream conservative. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi, and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell, Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem, says... I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. 
to find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march. Follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. He presents a program on GB News for goodness sakes. Like, yeah, yeah. like that is not that is not a normal conservative by any stretch. Yeah, and obviously, um, and we probably should have mentioned this earlier. It's important that Calvin Robertson himself is black. There's a level of carefulness that we as two white people have yeah, to um, tread here, but I think it's also you know. Well, like when when he's the only like, yeah, fine, but he's claiming that institutional racism doesn't exist. Right, you know, mm. every group has their outliers, right, and that's what Calvin yeah. Robinson is. Yeah, and I think you know, there's a certain form of liberal identity politics that instrumentalizes your particular position and identity to essentially quash down any sort of radicalism mm -hmm. while claiming to be, you know, radical. And you know, actually, what Calvin Robinson is is a, the logical extension of that, which is actually even the hard right can utilise that sort of identity politics to bash down any opposition by saying, well, you know, you can't tell me that the Church of England is institutionally racist because I'm black. And actually, the answer is the vast, vast majority of black Anglicans are pretty clear that there is institutional racism within the church. Yeah. And so we don't have to listen to individual voices so much as the, the weight of that community. Yeah. You know, and to, to kind of ground that within our own kind of community, if you will, there are people within the disability community uh, who would, you know, espouse very conservative lines on things. There are fascists and racists who are disabled, but the disability community as a whole do not espouse those views mm -hmm. And, you know, if there was a disabled person saying, actually, it's totally fine to, I don't know, call people retards, that doesn't mean that because one disabled person said it, that that's the, the disabled rules. So and I think this very much applies here. Wow. That, I uh, didn't realise we were fl throwing slurs around on our podcast, Ben. Uh, well, we're allowed to. That's our slur. It's fine. That's, those are the slurs right, we're allowed to use. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do actually still have, like... The potential of being ordained myself. I'd like to retain that, actually. Uh, well, my life aim is to get both you and my darling wife uh, off that path, so we'll see how it goes. I mean, you're living in a house that's provided to you by that path, right? So Yeah, oh, no, I'm, I'm thoroughly compromised. I, I have no... <laughs> <laughs> no questions about that. I'm not. I'm not claiming any sort of moral consistency here, or even intellectual consistency, quite frankly. So yeah, that was that was Calvin Robinson. Um, hello to the blissfully ignorant who have rejoined us at this point in the podcast. Um, you missed nothing of value, um, but that would also be true if you skipped to the end of the podcast. So. So we want to move on to our main topic and talk a little bit about the monarchy. Uh, and we're going to start by talking about uh, Justin Welby putting his foot in it. Um, I think, I can't remember if we've talked much about Justin Welby before, but we find ourselves, I think, in a strange position in the Church of England where, as a lot of time with kind of liberal leaders and figures, we feel in some ways duty-bound to defend them from some of the more ridiculous hard-right attacks on them, whilst also having quite a strong criticism of them ourselves, um, but not wanting to kind of support 
you write invoicing our criticisms. Um, so whilst we are certainly not, um, I don't want to speak for us, I am certainly not a particular fan of Justin Welby by any stretch of the imagination. I do occasionally find myself in a position of having to say, well, he's not that bad. Uh, I mean, he's not a horrible person, is he? Right? Like, he's not a bad man by any no. stretch. But, like, what he is, is an archbishop in the Church of England, and therefore he's just a liberal. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's not even the worst archbishop, you could you could imagine, mm-hmm. but he's just off the mark a decent amount of the time because he occupies a position within the establishment. Yeah, and, you know, I think you said he's not a bad man. He was for a number of years, a uh, high-up oil executive. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd probably say he was and is a bad man. But um, <laughs> I take I take your point. But I can only imagine the skeletons that are in that particular closet. And uh, frankly, he'll be a, a very unusual oil executive if he isn't at least vaguely implicated in a, a, a coup somewhere. So, I mean... <laughs> not, not exactly someone we're particularly sportive of. <laughs> I... I- I can't make any comment on that, but um, <laughs> I mean, certainly the, the industry oh, is dripping in in oil <laughs> coups, yeah. Um, yeah, so Justin Welby's got himself in some hot water. He was doing an interview with ITV, um, and he said... With Prince Andrew, uh, that is a particular case, um, and I think we all have to step back a bit and wait to see what happens and um, he's seeking to make amends um, and I think that's a very good thing. We will get on to the bit that was really controversial in a bit but I think that alone I mean first of all is a bold-faced lie <laughs> like it is simply what what does making amends mean? What does that mean? It means writing a cheque to charity for £12 million to get out of the lawsuit that is coming your way because you allegedly had sex with a minor. But let's call it what it is. It's statutory rape. Yeah, and and I think when we're talking about amends, there are interesting questions, particularly from a abolitionist perspective, about what it might mean to make amends. But I think it's pretty clear that an admission of guilt is a prerequisite to make amends you cannot make amends for something you haven't said you you did um you know an apology is not enough that's the point of amends is that you have to then do things to make that apology have value but he didn't he he very clearly said i'm going to pay this money but i do not accept uh, any liability for the claim that has actually been made well yeah but but that that's because prince andrew doesn't recognize what he allegedly did as the thing for which he needs to make amends, whether he knows he did it or not, right? The thing he thinks he needs to make yeah. amends for is bringing the crown into disrepute. And and that's the thing is that, like, the crown always has to be number one. It always has to be the thing that's protected. It's the institution that he's concerned about, not this individual person whose life he's probably destroyed, at least for a considerable period of it. Yeah, so, yeah, I think even that alone was a foolish and wrong thing to say. Um, and I think, you know, appealing for a bit of calm about the one of the most powerful people in the country, uh, allegedly, I am legally obliged to say, raping someone is just a really 
dumb thing to say. Um, but he then makes some comments saying... I think we are... We have become a very, very unforgiving society. There's a difference between consequences and forgiveness. Uh, and again, I, I'm not going to go into the particular issues here or talk particularly about them. But I think for all of us, one of the ways that we celebrate when we come together is in learning to be a more uh, open and forgiving society. Obviously, people have read those in the context of his Prince Andrew comments. Um, he later came out and said uh, in his ITV News interview, the bishop was not referring specifically to Prince Andrew when he said we should become a more forgiving society. Um, so he's obviously backtracked a bit there. Yeah, but he's backtracked it, it, on the thing that he shouldn't be backtracking on. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like he's he's backtracking because basically his boss, like, it, it doesn't look good to be slagging off the boss's son, you know, to be slagging off the institution, or at least to be causing any amount of issue for them. You know, people like the monarchy. People like the queen. They like royalty regardless of whether they personally like Andrew, and for Justin to say something that could be, you know, apparently misconstrued as criticising Andrew, like, to him, that's bad. Yeah, and I think, you know, actually, uh, his comments, for me, kind of actually lean almost towards a kind of cancel culture, or oh, we've become too unforgiving, you know, and there's a lot to talk about, you know, the place of forgiveness, reconciliation, and making amends within the context of ideas that, you know, we would probably support, like no platforming, pushing abusers out of spaces, and all that, that sort of stuff. But what he's kind of saying seems to me to lean into that kind of Me Too backlash cancel culture stuff. But I think even more than that, I think he's probably realised that being quoted as pleading for a little bit of more consideration about Prince Andrew is not a good look. Well, yeah, because actually it fundamentally misunderstands what forgiveness is. And okay, on, on one level he said, well, there's a difference between forgiveness and consequences. But unless Justin knows something we don't know, there are no consequences for Andrew. Forgiveness is obviously a really important thing. But that doesn't mean that Andrew can just brush everything under the carpet and everything's okay. And that seems to be what Welby is getting at, at least to some extent here. The lawyers for Prince Andrew filed legal documents claiming the woman accusing him of sexual assault may suffer from false memories. I, th I think this cancel culture thing is really important, though, because Justin Welby has a lot of form on this. Um, he talks about cancel culture a lot. He's called it a parasite that destroys liberty. He talks about it quite a lot in his uh, second, I think it's his second book, um, Reimagining Britain, um, which... Um, you loved. I remember you saying how much you loved that book. <sighs> that book was not great. I, I found myself at times reading it and thinking, goodness me, he is just parroting far-right talking points and he doesn't realise it. He doesn't know. It's mm. it's not a great book. His one before that, uh, Dethroning Mammon, was 
not great either. You know, this is the thing about Justin Welby is he talks a lot about economics and, and trying to make a fairer society. And that's good. That's all stuff that I think, you know, obviously we support in principle. But his way of talking about that is is deeply limited. His engagement with, well, certainly with someone like Marx is almost non-existent. I mean, there's a couple of nods to Marx here and there where he's saying, well, Marx thought this and and Marx was wrong. Um, But, you know, he undermines himself because at one point he says Marx famously begins the communist manifesto with workers of the world unite, you have nothing left to lose but your chains. But Marx didn't begin the communist manifesto with those words. He ended it with those words. Yeah. He famously started it with a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism. Or my favourite version, I think it was the first or second printing. Yeah, I know exactly what you going to say. In, yeah, translation <laughs> in English. A, a frightful hobgoblin <laughs> is stalking Europe. Had a frightful hobgoblin been in the uh, kind of canonical version of the Communist Manifesto, I do genuinely believe communism would have won. I, I can see that, to be fair. Um, that is a hobgoblin I would follow. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think I don't want to say too much more on Welby because it's not really he's not really the point here. But um, and I don't even mean this in a mean way. But there is this understanding, I think, that the Archbishop should be an intellectual, somewhat of a an academically minded person, um, and Welby isn't that. And I think actually he puts out these books because he feels like. Or it's it's felt that that's the appropriate thing for someone like him to do. And the thing is, I think that's bad and silly, but I also don't think he does need to be someone... You know, he obviously needs to, does need to have some sort of theological grounding, but he doesn't need to be an intellectual. He doesn't need to be an academic to, to do that role. I think the thing is, though, Ben, is that um, what normally happens is you have someone from the... Normally an Anglo-Catholic, but certainly a more sort of intellectual side of the church... Um, will be archbishop and then they're followed by someone from the evangelical side of the church and then and it just goes backwards and forwards um, as archbishop of canterbury we had rowan williams now we've got justin welby and actually you know i sort of agree with you as well um i don't think the archbishop of canterbury needs to be someone who is you know a mega brain like like rowan williams is but what I do want is someone who, if they're going to write books, if they're going to put out all this stuff, knows what they're talking about, to be honest. Um, and, and and the problem with mm. Justin Welby is that he talks about things that he obviously doesn't know that much about. Yeah. And that's dangerous when yeah. you're in such a position of power. And and he doesn't recognise it as a position of power. I appreciate that. Mm. I say I appreciate that. Like, he should recognise it as a position of power. Yeah. But I think, I think he needs to be very careful about treading on this on this ground but you know to be honest he's the archbishop of canterbury you know we're going to expect a certain amount of it yeah exactly um Welby himself released a statement saying um these are complex issues that are difficult to address in a short media interview and i hope they do not distract from this week's joyful celebration of her majesty the queen's platinum jubilee it is jubilee day today as I said, no spoilers to confirm that neither of us are particularly royalists. I kind of almost see it as a weird hobby some people have. And whilst, obviously, intellectually as a leftist, hereditary monarchy, very bad idea, not for it. 
recognise the fact that the Queen is very much part of the political elite of this country and the monarchy is key to upholding the way the capitalist ideology functions in, in the UK. I've just never been that interested what, what, in it. What are, you, what are you talking about, Ben? The Queen is apolitical. Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually know the names of the royals. I know the Queen. <laughs> There's Andrew, the ginger one, who I think ran away. Harry. There's the bold... The bold the baldy one who allegedly keeps cheating on his wife. Edward. But no Brit- Oh what what, Ed- what his brother is in like next in line to the throne, sorry. Yeah, the next in line, the one uh, there's William. There's there's the one who's next who's big ears. Charles. Um and then there's the there's the baldy one who William. American newspapers and media organizations publish stories that he's cheating on his wife, but uh British ones don't because they're scared of getting sued. <laughs> um and then there's the one that's married to Mike Tyndall that I only know Zara. about because she's married to England rugby player Mike Tyndall. Um, <laughs> she's she's a, she's a horse dancer, isn't she? Is that right? Yeah, horse dancer. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she is she's the only one who is famous for actually achieving something, even if that achieving something is built on the back of being rich enough to do horse dancing as a sport. No, I think. I think there have been a few horse dancers in the royal family who are pretty good. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, horse dancing is not just like Formula One in the sense that it's mostly about how much money you're prepared to spend to win. But, um, well, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, At least she's, at least she has achieved something beyond being born to the right family. I mean, yeah. I I just, yeah. (laughs) I don't have, I don't have much time for that. Um, she, you may wish to know this. She, uh, she shares an alma mater with us. Why was she at the London School of Theology? <laughs> <laughs> with, 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 with us. Oh, oh, right. Sorry. No. Yes. I, I didn't go to no bloody London School of Theology, nor would I. Neither did I. If anyone asks, they would very much <laughs> not like to be associated with this podcast. Thank goodness nobody listens. So, I don't know much about the Royals, um, but Adam, you are perhaps more knowledgeable than me, and obviously as well as people who are part of the Church of England, um, technically speaking, the head of our church is uh, the Queen, so there is a religious element to this as well. I think, as you've kind of alluded to, people generally have a positive view of the Queen. Anti-royal, anti-monarchy sentiment has been growing in this country, slowly but steadily for some time, but the general consensus is still kind of a vague royalist approach, and I think people would perhaps be surprised to hear that there are those of us who would just get rid of them entirely. Um, So, Adam, what exactly is your problem with the monarchy? Well, I think there are different levels to this, especially as Christians, because, you know, a, a fundamental level, Jesus is pretty uncompromising with the rich he consistently condemns them and tells them to uh, sell their stuff and give all their money away he never takes their side never he's always siding with the poor and i think when we really get to the heart of it jesus knew that money was a fundamentally corrupting thing because it created uh, generational wealth and power for a few and abject poverty for many um and you know 
let's talk about Jubilee because here we are being compelled, as Keir Starmer puts it, to fulfil our patriotic duty by celebrating one old obscenely rich white woman ruling millions of people for 70 years um, off centuries of stolen wealth. But when you look at the biblical concept of Jubilee, it functions to do away with generational wealth and power, um, to to return land to its original owners, to um, forgive debts. You know, this this flies in the face of the hereditary principle, which which is why it's no surprise, really, that the God she claims to worship in Jesus Christ pronounces woe on the rich because they've already received their comfort. So, you know, before we even delve into some of the more insidious kind of um, systemic stuff, just on a personal level, wealth and uh, especially inherited wealth are pretty directly contradictory to the gospel. And then I guess on top of that, when we when we do start to get into some of that systemic stuff, the fundamental uh, function of the monarchy is to manufacture consent. As I sort of hinted at before, when we talk of monarchy, people will often come back and say, well, the queen, the monarchy is is apolitical. People genuinely believe that. They believe that the head of state is not political. And it's because the head of state is not elected uh, and they see politics as something that you know essentially is is something that's done once every four or five years at the ballot box and the rest of the time in the houses of parliament um or, or maybe in in the local council that's what people conceive politics as being you know rather than something that that happens every single day that every single one of us engages in whether whether we know it or not and that's a kind of politics that's that's done to you right it's it's not a kind of politics that you you really have any say over and and so anytime there's some kind of political scandal or uh, potential for negative press you'll see the royal family instrumentalized to deflect much of that uh, and that can be something that benefits the sitting government of the day the political class in general or even the royal family themselves and you know examples of that aren't hard to find either when harry and Meghan announced their engagement the government announced a benefits freeze affecting millions of people 21 minutes afterwards uh, and when like investigative journalists revealed last year that Buckingham Palace had used Queen's consent, uh, which is a, a secretive parliamentary mechanism that gives the monarch advanced sight of, of proposed laws. Buckingham Palace used Queen's consent to lobby the government so it alone could reject job applicants on the basis of their race. And within minutes, uh, I think it was something like, like 15 minutes um, after this was revealed, Buckingham Palace announced the plans for the Jubilee that we're we're all supposed to be celebrating, um, or rather enduring, um, right now. And I, I guess I'll actually I'll I'll read some of the Home Office papers that were uncovered in the National Archives because they're, they're actually they're incredible. They actually recount uh, this lobbying um, in in some detail. So they say that the the keeper of the privy purse, which at the time was a guy called Lord Tryon considered staff in the Queen's household to fall into one of three types of roles, uh, and I quote, A. 
senior posts which were not filled by advertising or by any overt system of appointment and which presumably would be accepted as outside the scope of the bill. B. Clerical and other office posts to which it was not, in fact, the practice to appoint coloured immigrants or foreigners. And C. Ordinary domestic posts for which coloured applicants were freely considered. Uh, end quote. So in other words, if you were not white, they might let you be a servant or a cleaner, but you certainly wouldn't be allowed to, to work in any other role. Um, and, and, and that particular lobbying, um, that was done in the 60s and 70s, it, it was a success. Buckingham Palace were exempted from the Race Relations Act of 1968 and all its successors right up to and including the law that's currently in effect, which is the Equality Act of 2010. So Buckingham Palace, to this day, can still legally discriminate not just on race, but on any basis they like, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. They do have, like, internal complaints procedures, but um, it's completely unaccountable to anyone but themselves. So, you know, is there even any point in using it? So, like, this is a consistent tactic that you can spot a mile off if you're, if you're looking for it. Um, Boris Johnson used it um, in his most recent, uh, well, probably all his scandals, I don't know. Um, but you know, it's plain to see that this is a function of monarchy. It's a clear demonstration of, of the monarchy being there to manufacture consent, to keep us all docile and unaware of, of what's being done to us and, and to our communities, uh, to make us believe that the political system as we have it is set up to prosper us, uh, is set up to be good for you and I and, and any other person uh, who's just living their normal lives. Um, and actually, that that's... a very very dangerous thing because it means that people's lives and livelihoods are affected by by that you know um you know bad news is 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 not just bad news for many it's it's deadly news it's lethal news people die because of this and the monarchy functions to to enable that to continue and to manufacture our consent and and often our complicity in that as well I mean, even just on, on the level that we're compelled to pay a portion of our taxes um, for its upkeep, you know? Yeah, and obviously, to touch back on what we said before, some of those taxes that we pay are going to pay off the alleged victim of Andrew. Well, not necessarily. I mean, it's worth saying that the Queen, well, in indeed, the monarch has an independent portfolio of uh, businesses and lands that uh, currently she holds, uh, uh, of which she makes money. So there's no uh, guarantee that that money came from our taxes. However, obviously, that in and of itself is a problem because how did they get the land? You know, where does that land come from and why do we let them keep it? Because that's a lot of land as well, right? Um, that they're also not very good at making profits from. But yeah, there are problems all the way down. And I think we might want to approach this as well from a theological lens, because there are certainly Christians who would take a more royalist stance and would talk about, you know, some of those ideas in the Bible around God appointing the leaders. And, you know, obviously there is a history of uh, monarchy in the Hebrew Bible, or what you might call the Old Testament. Um, Although that is obviously not 
always portrayed in the best light. Um, but yeah, then subsequently in the New Testament, there seems to be at least somewhat of an impulse towards a kind of political quietism, an approach that says, well, God's put these people in charge and we've got to just crack on with what we're doing. Um, so I guess as a, as, a, as a Christian who is not a royalist, how would you kind of counter that? that sort of view yeah i mean i mean the, the most obvious thing to say is that the sort of pursuit of of a king for israel is quite clearly cast as something that god does not desire uh god says fine you can have a king but it ain't gonna be good so i you know straight away we're on to something where actually at the very least what we can say about monarchy is that it's not a God-ordained thing. It's not something that God thinks is necessary or, or, or even particularly good. It's just that the Israelites apparently wanted one. In the New Testament, one of the biggest challenges comes from Romans 13, where Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities and that um, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. Um, and, and this is used pretty regularly by liberals and reactionaries to shut down any dissent from uh, Christian comrades. Um, but there's a very simple answer to this. The Greek word Paul uses for rulers in verse 3, it could mean Roman imperial authorities, but it's far more likely to be talking about synagogue authorities. And the most likely reason for this is that Paul was primarily addressing Gentile Christians who didn't like the idea of things like, you know, paying the temple tax or whatever. But even if we do take the traditional interpretation, we absolutely cannot divorce that from the context of uh, the Roman imperialism Paul lived under at the time. Uh, I mean, for one thing, Paul himself clearly didn't always obey the governing authorities, or he wouldn't have been in prison so much, and he wouldn't have, um, well, presumably um, been executed, as he almost certainly was. So another way to look at it is to consider that Paul's theological convictions were that the um, present evil age, so to speak, was coming to an end, and that he was trying to implement um, a kind of prefigurement of the age to come by setting up alternative communities in which you know resources were shared and so on um, and i think it's also worth noting that paul frequently uses language to describe jesus that comes straight from the cult of the emperor which can only be a challenge to its legitimacy right i mean even even to the point where stories of a virgin birth right um, and, you know, I, I subscribe to a virgin birth, but stories of a virgin birth were not unusual in uh, at, at that time. Um, and some of them were about the emperor. So, you know, um, straight away when you're telling that story, framing Jesus in this way sets him up to be an alternative, to be a rival, whether or not you have people like Paul come along later to say, oh, we don't want to rock the boat too much if we can help it, because that will get us killed. 
Yeah, and and I think you know I don't think either of us have subscribed to the more conservative notion of the Bible as a monolithic text of one perspective that teaches clear things about issues. And you know I would quite happily accept that there are impulses towards both kind of political quietism to letting the authorities get on with what they're doing, and impulses towards monarchy and deference and all that contained within the Bible. But I'd also want to say that there are impulses towards you know, Jesus is in places borderline iconoclastic, right? He is, you know, not exactly bowing down to either the secular or religious rulers of the age. So uh, there are competing impulses there. Um, and, you know, I think we just find ourselves more aligned. And, and I think, you know, I wouldn't want to kind of go too postmodern and say, well, you know, you pick what narrative works best for you, because I think I still would want to make the claim that our approach is the correct one and represents the general movement of scripture and christianity even if it isn't the entirety of the story but yeah i I don't think just because there are places where both monarchy and uh deference are kind of recommended or suggested uh that's not the whole story and even if it were i wouldn't feel necessarily bound to say well that's that then because we're living in a totally different context and I think, to be honest, I don't think people really argue that idea in good faith, um, to be blunt, uh, because I think there are always, you know, it's the whole joke about um, how uh, a lot of Trump people were, uh, you know, all about, he is the president, you have to respect the office of the president, blah, 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 blah. And they were also quite happy to swing behind, you know, him saying, well, actually, the election isn't legitimate, all that sort of stuff. You know, people aren't really saying you have to defer to your leaders. They're saying you have to defer to this specific leader because I like that style. And I think, again, not to be too harsh, but there's a dishonesty to it, right? Actually, you're not saying we have to universally submit to the leaders because God has put them in place. You're saying, I like the system that we have, and so I want you to submit to it because I think it's the good one. Um, And I think people should be honest about that and it's not that we should have to uh defer to our leaders it is that they like this particular set of leaders you know all these people uh if a leftist revolutionary government took power in this country won't be showing any deference to it you know that that is the reality of the situation um so yeah i think it's a rhetorical trick used to say actually shut up and just deal with the system because i quite like it yeah well well that's it and actually it's a it's a rhetorical trick that's used primarily by people who are not at the worst end of what that system does to people. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or people, or people who don't recognise that they are somewhere at the worst end of what that system does to people because of the function of things like monarchy to manufacture consent. And and I will just say as well, you know, you mentioned Jesus not exactly being deferential to powers and, and rulers i mean he he literally calls herod a fox and that is an insult wait i always read that as him i thought he meant he was like sexy was that have i misread that whole <laughs> <laughs> oh you fox herod easy tiger <laughs> fox not foxy oh uh, my apologies yeah uh, this, this is this is the problem ben we have two thousand years and and um thousands of miles separating us from this culture and, and we still think that we we understand exactly what Jesus was 
was getting at and that it was um as the establishment is uh just just so happens to be in our day and age um probably probably that's uh not true just going to put that out there yeah abs- absolutely you know those the, it is yes a remarkable coincidence uh as many people have pointed out that uh jesus happens to teach believe and think exactly like the establishment um what a what a wonderful thing to have happened uh, i guess jesus won in the end yeah i mean we 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 just so happened to get it right and yeah okay there's a lot of um you know a lot of killing and colonization and 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 all the rest of it that's gone on but you know Clearly, that's what Jesus was talking about. You know, he wanted us to do that. Obviously, we're talking about this, and both of us are uh, non-royalists. Um, I'm going to have to take a moment here to pick a little bit of a bone with you, Adam, uh, because on a previous podcast, you referred to us as both Anglicans, uh, and I would like to once again state my position, which is that I am not an Anglican. I simply happen to be a member of the Church of England. Um, <laughs> I would, I, I would like to point out that um in a very recent episode of the podcast you did actually refer to us as both anglicans as well yeah it might it might be me to be fair that said it uh <laughs> either way that the, the point i was trying to make was that we are both members of various varying levels of commitment to a church that technically has the queen at its head um and so as people who are not royalists um and as as I suppose for me, it's a little bit easier because I ultimately, I guess, would see my place in the Church of England as a matter of uh, historical accident almost. I, I'm not someone who is necessarily committed to the Church of England so much as someone who is brought up and is married to someone who is part of it. Um, so, you know, it... <laughs> But for you, you are someone who is, you know, essentially committing the rest of their life, uh, in all probability, to an institution with the Queen at the head. So how how do you navigate that as someone who does not want to have a monarchy in place? Uh, with considerable difficulty. Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is something that I, uh, you know, I struggled with and still struggle with really but something i struggled with for a long time and it's funny i i started um going to see my um to see a priest to talk through some of this stuff because i knew that they had similar ideas and and issues to do with this um and i thought well how how on earth did they do it and we we had a few sessions we're talking about all this kind of thing and um related stuff and um this uh this priest basically said oh for goodness sake adam just do what we all do um because you know we were talking about the fact that you have to swear allegiance to the queen and they said um oh just do what we all do and cross your fingers (laughs) um, i was quite shocked to hear that um yeah i mean well it's the same i know that you know (laughs) There's a very similar thing that goes on when people are asked to sign the issues in human sexuality document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they they had a similar thing with that. You know, their DDO said, "Close your eyes, and sign here." And and I think that's the thing is, so much of the Church of England is is. I mean, that is that is peak um, Anglican fudge. That you know, um, but like, yeah, okay, plenty of people in the church believe this stuff. You know, pro- probably a decent majority, but there are plenty of people who don't as well and who do have a problem with it um and you know the church of england claims it you know that it's 
a, ch a church for everyone in this country. The Church of England is the only established Anglican church in the world. It is the only Anglican church with a monarch at its head. This stuff is not normative to the denomination. It's not normative to Anglicanism. It's just something that the Church of England has always had and, and continues to have because the Church of England plays a role in the constitution of this country, a role that, in my humble yet correct opinion, it shouldn't play. So I, I get around some of this stuff by sort of rationalizing that um you know for me i still realize you know i realize that i still have to reckon with the fact that i will have to swear allegiance or at least affirm and declare my allegiance to um the queen her heirs and successors um, i don't agree with that I, I strongly disagree with that i don't think it should be in there um and and i think it's a problem that it's in there because you know the church of england claims to be claims it wants to be a church for everyone in this country and what it is doing by siding so consistently i mean i say siding so consistently i mean it is the establishment it literally that's where that word comes from but by being that and doing that continuing to do that it is deciding that it doesn't want to be the church for certain people even if it claims it wants to be and i think it's that sort of almost a kind of spiritual paternalism going on that as i said before is not necessarily a part of or, or is not as strong in other churches within the anglican communion that is really causing the issues here the church claims it wants to be for everyone in the country but doesn't let people who share you know 99 percent of what that church believes or, or you know allows you to believe but also insists if you're going to be ordained that you swear allegiance to the queen and that the church is established and all the rest of it and and that's a problem and, you know despite the fact that you know i was reading a, a publication that church house put out very recently um that was talking about some of this stuff and and it quite clearly said um you know republicans absolutely can be priests that they have to work out that stuff as i have done but that it functions as a way of um uh kind of showing what you what service you're going to render to to society um I, I i that's not a very satisfying explanation for me um but if as far as they're concerned um they don't have a problem with republicans being priests even though clearly they have rules that say you have to swear allegiance to the queen then fine i can just about deal with that and i'm interested to kind of hear your thoughts about you know this is not something i know a great deal about at all but to what extent is the queen kind of necessary or important to the structure of the church of england both kind of on a practical level and a, a theological level could you essentially whip the monarchy away from the church of england without um causing too many kind of issues there or would it require a kind of a wholesale start from scratch including probably disestablishment well i hope it includes disestablishment um because i do think that those two things are fairly inextricably tied um maybe i'm overstating that you can have one without the other of course but both those things 
serve as part of the church's role of as i say of manufacturing consent right part of part of what it's there to do um at its worst i would say is is to be there to provide cover for for those in power um obviously i don't think it's just that or i wouldn't be going into it but that is that is a, a function i think disestablishment is the trickier one you know if you, you you could get rid of the queen you could get rid of the queen in it and you'd have to change a few things here and there for sure but ultimately things on the ground would stay the same um most of how the church makes decisions would would stay the same disestablishment is the trickier one to deal with uh, because it's you know the church of england is so entangled with the constitution with the the laws and organizations and and institutions of this country the final thing i wanted to mention is that uh particularly observant listeners might have picked up on uh me avoiding using the word republican throughout the the podcast um and the reason for that is i believe adam despite being anti-monarchy you would not consider yourself a republican um and so i could you enlighten us on what what particular distinction you're drawing there, and why you think it's a important one? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's in some respects it's not that important to be honest. It's uh, a, a, an issue largely of terminology. I, I find most of my politics, yes, I obviously draw from Marx uh, fairly considerably, but I still find most of my politics in a more libertarian stream as in libertarians or socialist uh, kind of stream which is a, a a broad umbrella term that you could essentially just call anarchism for me i'm not a republican because i don't want to just simply get rid of the queen and then replicate all the functions of the state again just with a president or something i, I want to do away with those things and and for me you know when i look at the yes okay there are important examples where it's not the worst thing in the world but i'm unconvinced thus far by the models i found advanced by um you know quote unquote communist countries um obviously you and i both know that they're not they don't even claim to be communist um or to have achieved communism anyway but the point is, for me, I don't call myself a Republican because it gives people a false idea of what I want there to be and what I want to replace what we currently have. And for me, that is not just some liberal republic that that just does the same shit, um, but without a nice, uh, without a, 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 a old woman um, in a shiny hat telling us all what to think. Yeah, and I think it's probably, you know, it's here that we have to acknowledge the kind of creativity and adaptability of capitalism um, which is something that um, I think critics of Marx often often miss is his almost admiration for the way capitalism adapts and changes and is able to kind of keep going through you know almost wholesale adaptions of itself uh, to the context and in some sense Britain is somewhat of an outlier amongst advanced capitalist nations in not being a republic. You know, the vast majority of advanced capitalist nations are republics in one way or another. So um, it's not to say that the monarchy is the only way in which uh, 
capitalism kind of replicates itself and protects itself and manufactures consent, as you talked about earlier, but it's simply the way that it does it in, in our country in particular, and that it is certainly... I was going to say it's possible to imagine, but it is possible to see what a republic would look like that is still deeply capitalist, deeply exploitative, deeply unequal, all this bad stuff. I guess I'd probably still refer to myself as a Republican in the shorthand way, because it's hard enough to persuade people that that's a normal, legitimate thing to be without saying, oh yeah, and the rest of the Republicans, they're actually all wrong about this anyway. Um, <laughs> Which is, yeah, I mean, to be fair, that is the left, right? It's being like, yeah, kind of this, but also everyone else is wrong. Um, <laughs> well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, but, it's typical of why we don't get anything done, right? Uh, yeah, well, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important to acknowledge that, um, you know, a capitalist republic is not is, is not good enough, you know? Removing the monarchy might be a prerequisite for a socialist society of some description however you want to conceptualize that but it is not the only prerequisite for it and there's going to be a lot of other stuff that has to happen as well yeah well i think that's the thing is it's people often criticize the monarchy for being and, and this is the term that you, you you will often hear for being a feudal relic and it is it is a feudal relic but as you rightly point out the monarchy yes was there to um, not just uphold but but to play a key role in feudalism. But it fulfills many of the same um, functions now under a capitalist society, uh, within a capitalist society. Um, it's, it's there, regardless of what the status quo happens to be, it is there as part of the status quo um, to uphold the status quo. doesn't matter whether that's feudalism or, or capitalism. Um, it's there to provide us that, that focus. Um, it, it, is, it is a form of civic religion. That's what it is. It's it, it, uh, that and, and uh, alongside nationalism. Um, you know, the Queen acts in the same way that uh, a, a god would act um in our minds at least um and to to say something like we should get rid of the queen or take down all the flags or whatever will set off the same kinds of alarm bells that would have been set off um in years gone by by saying we should get rid of the church um this stuff serves as a way to keep us all docile and i can't um you know hammer that home enough I think that's a good point to leave the episode for today. Thank you very much for listening to us. Uh, it has been uh, lovely to record again and nice to know that at least a few people want to listen to our strange ramblings. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch. We're breadandrosaries at gmail.com, uh, bread underscore rosaries on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on Facebook as well and probably other places that I've forgotten about. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from people, so please do get in touch. Adam, where in the world can people find you? Uh, you can find me on um, most social media platforms at commiexian. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. See you later.
the way to just what you want Is that the meat you wanted to eat? How would you ever know? Hash browns and bacon strips I love the way that you lick your lips No fooling, I can see it drooling Feel the hunger glow Don't you give me no switch Come on, baby